This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week's show is one of those bits of everything shows. We have a peek behind the footlights at Maplewood Barn, a visit with a musician who counts Sonic the Hedgehog as one of their main musical influences, and some fine art that tells the story of the fragility of the natural world and the ravages of climate change. As always, there is a lot to pack in, so let's head off first of all to St. Louis. It takes a lot of guts to leave the limelight of your hometown and relocate to a giant city half a country away where nobody knows you. And it takes even more guts and self-awareness to say, you know, I have done my best here and this is no longer healthy for me and make the decision to come home. But for St. Louis musician Paige Alyssa, the move back from Los Angeles to their home city of St. Louis has been the start of a brand new musical creation, Paige Alyssa and the Max. Although only 29, Paige already has multiple albums to their name, including an instrumental seven-track EP that came out last year titled No Worries, which was inspired by Paige's love of 1980s pop and Sonic the Hedgehog. For Paige, music is about spreading joy and inspiring others, and that music is a reflection of growing up, singing gospel, playing drums since they were nine, a degree in jazz vocal performance from Webster University, plus their love of 80s synth-pop video games and new jack swing, where the rhythms of hip-hop street beats fuse with urban R&B. It is this blend of multifarious influences that creates a sound that is uniquely Paige Alyssa. And it has been a busy few weeks for Paige. A couple of weeks ago, the Paige Alyssa Quintet played at Jazz St. Louis. There have been rehearsals for Paige Alyssa and the Max's upcoming live debut at the St. Louis Art Museum on August the 26th. And this week, the group dropped their first single titled Liquor. And this month, Paige Alyssa is also one of the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists. So I am delighted that in between everything else, Paige is here on Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to the show, Paige. Thank you so much, Diana. That was a lovely intro. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to get that recorded and carry it with me everywhere I go. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. I think we have to start with Sonic the Hedgehog, about which I know nothing, but I do <laughs> see from a quick internet scroll that it is considered to have some of the best music in the video gaming world. So maybe it is no surprise that you find musical inspiration <laughs> there but what do you love about it everything so like i grew up in church so i spent a lot of my time listening to gospel music because not only was i in church my mom is a minister of music so she was constantly looking for new things to teach and so we just exclusively i listened to gospel music up until maybe i was like 11 years old but then the times I wasn't listening to gospel music, I was playing my Sega Genesis. And so <laughs> I was getting all these different sounds from all the video games I was playing. And like, I just loved Sonic so much as a kid. 
I've been playing that game since before I started school. You know what I mean? So it's colorful and just the music is so good. So I would find myself five, six years old making up song lyrics, these little melodies that are playing on these levels. And they have stuck with me for like 23 years and counting. And so much of that sound has inspired my own work as a producer. And honestly, a lot of the Sonic soundtrack pulls a lot from synth pop and New Jack Swing. So there's a lot of overlap in the type of styles of music that I enjoy listening to anyway. So it kind of was very serendipitous, you know, but also very much on point for the person that I am. (laughs) (laughs) So your world is now super busy. Concerts, debuts, new singles, and your brand new venture, Paige, Alyssa, and the Max. Tell us about this venture and how and why you all came together. Yeah. So when I got back from LA, I really took some time to just think about why I do what I do. Like, why am I a musician outside of the idea of fame and riches, those type of things. Like I wanted to connect with my art in a very personal way and connecting with it in ways that I had gone about in the past and equating my success based off of like things that I was getting, it wasn't fulfilling for me and it also wasn't sustainable for me. So when I came back from LA, I was just doing a lot of thinking and like, I missed my music community here so much. Like I missed my siblings that have been playing with me since I graduated from college and took me under their wing. And when I came back, I was like, I want to do something with my friends. Like I had multiple projects on the table that I could do. And I decided on Pageless and the Max, you know, the eight piece band, the most expensive one (laughs) (laughs) that I could come up with. Right. But like it just it made my heart smile. And I wanted to get back to that with my art because I used to sing when I was a kid just because I liked it. And as you get older, you know, you get jaded and life and capitalism and money, all those things start taking a toll on like your decision making and not saying that those things don't still obviously hold some type of importance to me now, but it just was really important for me to pick out my favorite musicians in St. Louis and the people who really held me down when I got back from L.A., um, the people who have been inspiring me and telling me to keep going from the beginning. I just wanted to do something with them that they could feel proud of and that I could feel proud of too, because this is my family, you know? And so that's the reason why I really wanted to do it. And I haven't been able to actually create an album with my band before. Most of the stuff I would do, I'd produce it on my own. I'd write everything on my own, but I just wanted to do something different because I am different. I came back from LA a different person and I've just grown a whole lot in these last two years. And I wanted this record to reflect that in all the ways that I've changed. Talk to me a little bit about that, about coming back from LA and how how that whole experience changed you as an artist. I kind of refer to those moments in my life as like an ego death. And that's basically where you're forced to look yourself like in the eyes and be like, okay, so (laughs) you have a choice to like take these challenges about your character and these things that you're like been struggling with mentally head on, or you can continue on this path and like, you know, know that where you're at right now in your life is not healthy for you and can keep making the same mistakes over and over again until it has an even more detrimental impact. And obviously I chose the former. (laughs) And so, I mean, being out in LA just kind of, it again, puts a lot of things in perspective for me. Like, I remember having a conversation like if I don't get these major milestones that I created for myself, like no one said that I had to go and do all these things as far as like what success looks like being a multi-platinum or, you know, millionaire, all these things that people think of or what we tend to chase when we're in, you know, the field that we're in. 
And I had to kind of take a step back and be like, I need my music to mean something to me, whether I do those things or not. And I'm always going to continue to reach for the stars, but like I have to be able to be happy with the art that I have in the community that has always been here. Because if none of those things come to fruition, does that mean everything that I've been working for was like null and void? Was it all a lie? And like being out in LA really made me wrestle with that question. And I, I was at this point where going to LA was, was like the ultimate thing that I wanted to do or I thought I wanted to do. And then when I got out there, I was like starting to realize that I'm not happy. My art isn't making me happy. I feel like my music is just becoming a means to an end. And like, I just don't feel like myself anymore. So at what point do I be grown enough to say like, I need to change something or something is needs to happen differently. And that's how I got to that point. And I came home from LA and then the day I got back in St. Louis was the first COVID case popped up in the United States. <laughs> right. And so I, I decided to stay home. It just gave me a chance to come home and heal and like work through some mental health things so I can just be a better person and be a better musician and be a better community member here to my friends and family and my musician friends. So now that you are working collaboratively with the other members of uh, the band of the max you are blending your influences so it's not only your voice now i think you've talked about it about how you want their influences to also be part of that music so talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. how difficult that is having gone from being a solo artist to now working with a band the cool thing about it, most of the people who are in the Max have been playing live with me since like 2016, but the process was different. Like I was writing and producing everything in my house and I would give them the music and they would just execute. But this time, you know, like my friend Luke Saylor, who is one of the keyboardists in the band, like he and I got together and workshopped up these two singles and I played them for him and he put his swing on them. When we got in the studio, everyone had the lead sheet with the chord progressions, but I didn't really give anyone a direction on how I wanted it played. <laughs> and the reason why I did that is because I didn't know how else to approach it because I had just worked so siloed and like mm. anything I ever did was just really coming directly from my mind. And like I I just was really stubborn about anything that I wanted to do. And I feel like the more I relinquish my artistic power to the people that I trust around me and the people who I adore as musicians, the better this, this music feels. And it's just, is really incredible to be working with like this group of musicians who have seen me grow up as, as a singer and performer and a producer. And I've also have seen them do the same. And so now that we're all in this place, we're able to just kind of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And if something doesn't work, then all right, we're going to we're going to go back and do it again. <laughs> well, let's take a little musical break. I'd love to play a little bit of your brand new single, Liquor, released this week. But tell us a little bit about that track first. Yeah, so I went with Liquor as the main single because I wanted to give my audience a piece of something that's Paige Alyssa, you know, like this is my first studio recording since 2018. So I wanted to give them something that still sounded like me, but is also starting to move away from what people would expect from me. So it's very groovy. I'm singing down on it. So I think my voice sounds fantastic. And like BB and Chrissy sound fantastic, the three of us together. So yeah, I think people can expect to, you know, get their groove on a little bit and enjoy all the beautiful colors that are painted with this tune. Okay, here it is. Liquor by Paige Alyssa and The Max. She said, baby, tell me what 
grew up in the Baptist church, but you split with the church after the Marriage Equality Act and the hateful rhetoric towards LGBTQ people. Talk to me, though, about the musical positives you take away from that upbringing and also how how breaking with the church really allowed you to center your own identity in your music. Yeah, so everything musically, I feel like I owe to the Baptist church. I owe to my mother, who is still currently a minister of music in the church. Like as far as my sense of rhythm and how I feel and hear music, all of it, I owe all of it to the church. And it was actually really hard for me to to make that transition out from being affiliated with the Baptist church because I had self-identified as queer long before I left, you know, the church. Like I, all through college, I was out and I still was playing at my church, but like I, I wasn't out at church, you know what I mean? And when the my first EP came out, I didn't really specify about like what gender I was singing about. Like I was using all gender neutral terms, which is something that I do now anyway, just because I know folks who use they, them, I use they, them. So I use it as a level of like inclusivity now. But when I was doing it in my first record, I was afraid if people from my church who adored me and supported me, heard me singing about relationships with other women, it would be an issue. So I kept that all under wraps for like that community for a long time. Um, And when I did decide, finally decide to leave, it just kind of was at a point where I'm like, I feel secure in myself. And I know that I deserve to be in places where I'm safe and where I'm celebrated. And it also still hurt though, because so much of who I am as a musician, you know, is rooted in all those memories and all that training and upbringing. And I honestly still very much miss playing gospel music on a weekly basis, you know, so, but I'm glad that I did it because now I just have this, like, I'm just completely open. I'm not in any space where I have to compromise who I am in order to feel safe or to be, to be seen. And at the end of the day, that's going to be the thing that's most important to me. I'm curious whether now living as an openly queer person, whether you have felt an opening up or an increased inclusiveness within the music industry, like such a male dominated space and whether today Mm -hmm. and moving forward, it feels different than it did five years ago. Is it changing? So it's a tough question, you know, because I feel like as far as the music industry goes, I think that I have been able to navigate the scene in different ways than like my other femme presenting peers go. I consider myself more of like a masculine presenting person, more of a tomboy. And the men in these spaces kind of recognize me as such. And so I get treated like one of the homeboys, you know what I mean? So, and I'm also at the same time, there's this level of me being little sister, you know? So there's just this level of protection that I feel like I'm always, I always have around me. One, because the the people in my life who don't identify as queer, the other musicians that are in my life who don't identify that way are so supportive of me. And like, they are always, always, always have been respectful and have protected me and like been respectful of my community and supported that. But I know that there are definitely some instances where like my musician friends that may be more femme presenting, they sometimes don't have that same access that I have. Like there will be people who will be disrespectful to them. And so like, I know that a lot of my women friends are navigating that level of it. And that's not to say that I don't get some level of that either. Right. 
But at the same time, though, I think I've been able to navigate those spaces in a way that my other peers may not be able to because of, you know, I have a degree from Webster and I also have this background in nonprofit. And then I also have these different levels that kind of overlap that I don't catch heat quite the same way as other people. And there is always going to be huge, huge room for improvement, especially in the way that we highlight our trans musicians and our non-binary, other non-binary musicians. Like, it just can't be room for me at the table, you know, as like a genderqueer person. Like, I want more people who look like me to be able to come into these spaces and feel safe too. I really hope that one day there is no more room for improvement because it is fully improved. We can Ugh, hope right, for that, I, right? Fingers crossed. Seriously, I reach for that every day. So you are involved with all stages of your musical creations. You are a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, a vocalist of multiple genres, a ranger, producer. And you said in an interview a few years ago that if you were not able to bring folks joy and inspire dreamers or put good things back into the atmosphere with your art, then all of those tools, all of those abilities that you have would be for nothing because it is about joy. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that moment when you look out into a crowd and you're standing there on stage and you just see and you feel that connection between the audience and your music. How does that feel? It feels incredible. You know, and I'm I'm really glad that we're actually this, we're having this interview today because I just have been thinking about that a lot. Again, going back to why I do what I do, and like that really is what it's for is to inspire people and to bring joy. Like a lot of my music is about love, you know, and like physical intimacy, right? But I think the reason why I write those ways is because people who look like me, it's already been decided by certain parts of our society that we don't deserve love. We don't deserve to experience joy fully. We don't deserve to experience all these different things. And we have to constantly remind folks that we actually do deserve love and we do deserve to experience joy. And so my outlook is always that like I am writing these songs from that place that like I don't have to explain anything. It's already should be understood that I'm having fun and living my life. And if I can do it, then you can do it too. So that's always one piece of it because regardless of whether I'm singing to another girl or not, like my fan base is made up of all types of people with different identities. And like, they all just love the music and they love the joy that they feel when they hear me perform or hear my music. And that's really what it's all about. And like, on a professional standpoint, if I can inspire other queer people to do this as authentically as possible and to be musicians and to be confident to hit that stage, then like, that's the reason why I do it. And those are the things that make me happy when like young trans folks come up to me and say like, yo, hearing your song made me feel that I can do X, Y, and Z. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is just letting people know that you can have joy despite what the world is showing us and telling us now. And that like joy is just as radical mm. um, as a means to, to be living. That's beautiful. Well, tomorrow night, Paige Alyssa and the Max will play their first live concert at the St. Louis Art Museum as part of its Slam Underground series. Your new single came out this week. What do the next few months look like for you? It's all happening. Oh, God, everything is happening so fast. (laughs) It's crazy because I wrote these songs like two years ago and I finally workshopped them in March and now it's August. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, I'm hoping to shoot a video for a particular girl in the next month or so. So that's coming up. Um, I want to drop two more singles within the next six months. Again, I'm being really ambitious. And the goal is to have like a nine track 
album with Paige Listen to Max next spring. So everybody just keep us in your positive thoughts because we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go out with a clip from the other track on your single. This one is Particular Girl. Any notes you would like to impart on this one, Paige? Yeah, so this one is actually for for my girlfriend. Um, She's a Virgo, you know, and she's very particular. And like, I actually wrote this before she and I even got together. Like, we were just friends, and I just I was picking up some of the her habits and some of her ways. And I was like, wow, she's really particular. And today is the first day of Virgo season, so you know, it's just very, very much on point. <laughs> Perfect. Well, here it is, just a short clip of Particular Girl by my guest Paige Alyssa of Paige Alyssa and the Max. exciting times page i am so excited for you and i hope that maybe you make it to columbia before too long or somewhere in mid-missouri yeah i would actually love that a lot like i the next thing on my list that i really want to check off is like i want a tour like i want to go on tour you know and so i'm hoping that i can make it up into columbia and do do a gig or two with the max and yeah we'll put that in the atmosphere that i can come up and see you diana we would (laughs) love to see you then i can have you back on the show we could do some more chatting Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. (laughs) To find out more about Paige Alyssa and their music, visit pagealyssamusic.com. And that's P-A-I-G-E-A-L-Y-S-S-A music, pagealyssamusic.com. And Paige, thank you so much for sharing a little bit with us about your musical journey and for making time to chat this evening. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I know this is tantamount to theatrical heresy, and I'm not even sure if as an English person I'm technically allowed to say this, but I really don't care for Shakespeare. Sorry, Dame Judy. Sorry, Sir Kenneth. Sorry, Monica Palmer. His works just leave me cold. I'm not disputing that he wrote brilliantly and imbued the English language with a massive vocabulary of new words and phrases, which we use to this day, and that he is feasibly the world's greatest dramatist whose works on words have occupied academics and theatre lovers for centuries. I may well have been a huge fan of his had I been around in the 1590s. 
I just don't think he's really shedding any light on life in the 21st century. Plus, even though I am English, I have scant idea what is being said. And yes, this is only my opinion. And there are plenty of people who adore Shakespeare and now know that I am indeed a theatrical heathen. So whenever I hear that a local theatre company is performing Shakespeare... Honestly, my heart sinks a little and I think, why? Yes, if Dame Judy and Sir Ian McKellen came to Mid-Missouri to perform Hamlet and I didn't have anything else on, I might think about going to see their production, but I would still feel like I deserved some edible or drinkable treat for sitting through it. My good friend and Shakespeare adorer Monica Palmer recently came back from a week in Stratford, Ontario, watching a plethora of Shakespeare plays. And she posted a picture of a book she purchased in which the author, Maya Gosling, distills down all of Shakespeare's 39 plays into three panel stick figure cartoons. And and here is Hamlet. The ghost of Hamlet's father tells Hamlet to avenge his murder. Hamlet talks a lot about avenging his father's murder. Hamlet avenges his father's murder. Perfect. That is my attention span for Hamlet. So my guest this evening has a tall order for Russ Scott is the director of the upcoming production of Hamlet at Maplewood Barn, which opens tonight and runs for three weekends. Russ, it is always lovely to talk with you and I apologise in advance for being so terribly disinclined to Shakespeare. (laughs) It's completely fine. I'm like, I haven't yet met someone who's British who actually likes Shakespeare. (laughs) I'm glad I'm not alone. Americans, we love it. Yeah. I've not met any British person who has says, oh, I just love Shakespeare. Well, that is interesting. So why did you want to take on this directorial role? Well, Hamlet was the first Shakespeare play I read in school when I was a freshman. And I've been reading it at least once or twice a year, every year. And 10 years ago, I was in the production at the barn and I played Horatio. And I've been wanting to be in the director's seat for that show for a very, very long time. People often say that Shakespeare's stories, within the stories, there are a lot of truths that hold true today. But I just don't see a huge amount of regicide, witches predicting kings, lovers taking poisons, statues coming to life, kings banishing their daughters. Yes, love, revenge, murder, regret, those things are all still around. But there are other people telling those stories in ways that we can actually understand. So, I mean, I know you said why you, you know, love Hamlet because you read it at school, but give me your why you love Shakespeare speech. Well, other than, you know, musicals, because everyone's exposed to musicals in high school, Shakespeare was what I was always exposed to first. And so something I always read, kept reading. And in life out now, there's no regicide. There's avenging parents' murder. But there is, at least with our production, grief and how we handle grief. And that's where we started from in this journey was looking at how these characters handle grief and love and loss and depression and other mental issues. And that's something that resonated for me. So when you are at the start of a production like this and you've got your cast together, do you sit down with the cast before you even start rehearsals and and talk through those issues and what it brings up for people? We talked briefly early on and through the process and character work, we talked about how the characters would approach this. And at one point, I think our actress playing Hamlet, she was like, yeah, his parents, they're 
gaslighting him. They're telling Hamlet that you shouldn't feel this way. It's been enough times gone by. It's just, you know, they're not saying get over it, but that's what they're really trying to tell him is get over it. So in a nutshell, Hamlet is a Danish prince whose father is dead and his father's brother marries his mother. But then Hamlet's father appears as a ghost and tells him that it was his own brother who killed him and asks that Hamlet avenge his death. And so Hamlet pretends to go a bit insane, inadvertently kills the wrong person. Some traveling theater people arrive. There's kind of a play within a play and Hamlet sees a way to get bad Uncle Claudius to confess. And of course, there's a love interest who may or may not be involved in betraying our young hero and I know that's skipping over a lot but it's kind of the gist of it and it is the longest play by Shakespeare 29,551 words according to Wikipedia so I am presuming that you are producing an adapted version plus I know you like to take plays to new and unusual places so entice me with details of your version. I spent two years preliminary cutting the script And then about halfway through the rehearsal process, I handed the script over to one of our actors and said, hey, we need to make more cuts. So uncut, Hamlet can run almost four hours. And we've cut it down to two and a half hours. And we haven't cut any of the context. We just cut a lot of like, like you were talking about, you don't understand the words sometimes, what they're saying. Mm -hmm. We've pretty much gotten rid of not gotten rid of, but we've toned that down. And one of the things that we've added to the production is recorded music to help tell the story. So that if someone isn't really paying attention to the words that are being said, they can listen to some of the music and how the actors are moving on stage and the story is still being told to them. So tell me what you mean by toned it down. There's a lot of metaphors and specific phrasing that Shakespeare used for his time period. And some of that has been eliminated from our production. So are you setting it in 16th century Denmark? Are you setting it 300 years in the future? Like, what are you doing that's kind of got its Rust Scott touch to it? I like to mix a lot of things together, not set it in one specific time period. And because of the modern music that we're using, we're trying to keep it universal. And so you'll see actors in modern clothing, but also be using swords and muskets. At one point in the show, Hamlet pulls out a cell phone (laughs) and uses it. I've done past Shakespeare shows where, yeah, we set it in the future or set it in the 1970s. But this version of Hamlet is not set in any specific time period. Because for me, the concept of grief dealing with that and mental issues is universal. Right. Were there, were there whole chunks of scenes that you decided was superfluous that you, you took out? Every scene that Shakespeare wrote is included in the script. It's just we cut out a lot of the lines. If Shakespeare had like a half a page of a character's monologue, we cut that down to like a quarter. <laughs> Two and a half hours still feels like a long time to sit through Shakespeare. I know there are many local actors that leap at the chance of performing Shakespeare, and I see that you definitely have some of them in your cast, Dana Bocchi and Sarah Jost, and you have a fabulous female Hamlet in Erin Matteson. So clearly you didn't have 
a struggle casting Hamlet. Were there lines of people wanting to be in this production? And for you as the director, what were some of your criteria in choosing who would play who? There weren't a lot of lines of people. Early on in the process before auditions, I tried to reach out to a vast group of people. And I was adamant about having a diverse cast to represent the community as a whole. And so when people auditioned, I wasn't looking at really anything specific other than I knew that I wanted to have a diverse cast. And people surprised me in auditions. They really did. Aaron was wonderful all through the audition process and has been through all of rehearsals. I've worked with Dana on several productions before, and she's always brings her A game. Mm-hmm. Sarah actually was in the production that I was in 10 years ago in a different role, and now she's playing the role that I played 10 years ago. I think that probably one of the reasons I have such an aversion to seeing Shakespeare performed is kind of the same way I don't like seeing artwork hung in badly lit venues. I think art should be hung where it can be illuminated perfectly. And I think that much of my antipathy to Shakespeare has to do with having seen it verbally mauled in many places around the world. How do you weigh that responsibility as the director of a Shakespeare production? You have this, you know, 400 years of history and people feeling indifferent to it. And that is on your shoulders to make this production shine. How do you feel about that? This play has meant so much to me growing up and 10 years ago when I did it and then all throughout this process. And I just try to tell the story the best way that we can. And sometimes we hit the mark, sometimes we don't. And with this, I was really like, I wanted to make sure we told the story the way I see it. Yes, the Danish prince avenging their father's death, but for me, it's Hamlet dealing with the grief, with losing their father, and how that has affected every decision moving forward. So how does your interpretation of it being a play about grief manifest itself in the production over other productions? How is yours different? I think part of it was how we handled the scene work. I mean, I told them up front, I don't want to focus on the fact that Hamlet's supposed to be playing madness. No, there's a reason behind that. You're so filled with grief that you can't look people in the eye or you'll just give short answers. And then with the monologues, uh, the soliloquies, Hamlet is constantly questioning themselves, questioning their place in the world, which is what people do when they're trying to go through the grieving process. And I think we see that on stage. Um, When Ophelia, how they deal with the death of Polonius is completely different than any production I've ever seen. And I've given the actors a little bit of free reign to try to put their own spin on it. I think that's one of the difficulties for actors doing Shakespeare. There's so much archaic language and lines to learn that quite often it's just a feat getting the lines out, let alone delivering them 
with the emotion that is intended. You know, your brain is too busy just thinking, oh, my God, what comes next? So how are you getting your actors past that point and into the emotional delivery of the lines? I've been telling them that a director should never say, don't worry about the lines. (laughs) But I've been telling them that. For me, it's how they're saying the lines, how they're staying in character. I mean, if they miss a word here, miss a line there, for me, it's okay as long as they're fully presenting what's going on as their character. Fully engaged in the in the emotion of the moments. Yeah, and completely engaged in the emotion. And I've seen productions where the lines are all there, and yet it's wooden on stage. Hmm. But I think that's uh, one of the things that I enjoy about working with actors is getting them to engage, even if they have no idea what they're talking about. They can express that emotion. Yeah, I think that's a good way to approach Shakespeare is to know the emotion and then the words as kind of almost secondary to delivering the emotion. The words will come, yeah. Talking about that, the idea of a language and the enunciation Even in a perfectly silent auditorium, Shakespeare is hard to follow. And I love Maple Barn. I love being under the stars. There is that kind of sometimes a slight distant hum of traffic. And sometimes outside in the open air, dialogue can get swallowed up. How are you preparing your actors for the delivery of this difficult, archaic language with full enunciation? Uh, (laughs) Most shows out at the barn have to be mic'd. I mean, yeah. with the floor mics or with body mics, and we're doing that. But also, there's times when I've told my sound engineer that I want the music to overpower the dialogue because how they're engaging on stage is more important than the words that are being said. Tell me a little bit about the music you've chosen. A lot of modern music. Since the play opens up on a watchtower, I wanted to open up the show with All Along the Watchtower, Bob Dylan's classic. We have several different versions of that that we're going to try to use. I've got some meatloaf and some Metallica. I've used Metallica in almost everything I do. Uh, <laughs> and most of this is acoustic covers and string quartets or just a cello and piano for most of the music. Okay. Well, Maplewood Barnes production of Hamlet, directed by my guest Russ Scott, opens tonight and runs for three weekends, ending on Sunday, the 11th of September. All shows start at 8pm and will be outside, so take your camp chair and blanket and plenty of bug spray. And Russ Scott, sorry to give you such a hard time and may you break many legs. It's all good. (laughs) Thank you for making time to brave this chat. (laughs) Thank you. I had fun. Most artists find their medium niche and stay in that lane. But I have a couple of friends who are so artistically talented that their body of work crosses multiple media. Like my friend Susan Taylor Glasgow, whose kiln-formed glassworks are in galleries and collections across the country. But she's also a talented painter, makes gorgeous glitter paintings, creates beautiful fibre works and can turn her hand to ceramics when needed. And my next guest this evening is is in that same lane. Plattsburgh artist Laurel de Vries, who is a painter, photographer, papermaker, printmaker, works in collage and encaustic, and is also a designer. 
But behind her multimedia approach to and love for art lies a greater passion for the natural world and a desire to tell the story of our world's fragility through her art. Laurel studied at Missouri Western State University and at Aramont School of Arts and Crafts in Tennessee, and 20 years ago she founded the Plattsburgh Artists Coalition to provide a venue for local works and a way to deliver more education about fine art. In July, she was one of two artists whose work comprised a show entitled Fate at Park University, just north of Kansas City, which explored nature, truth, time and destiny in rural America. And Laurel's work from that show can now be seen at the Farmhouse Restaurant in Kansas City through October. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Laurel. Good morning. Well, let's start with your current exhibit. I would love to know a little more about the exhibit Fate, which is described as telling the slow moving narrative of the effect humankind has had on nature and the land. And this is such a huge topic. Tell us about the slice of that story that you wanted to tell through this exhibit. My ideas about this exhibit came from my concerns about climate change in our world that we are seeing very quickly. My love of nature and our planet, I couldn't get over these feelings that I had, so I had to start expressing it in my art. In Fate, there's a lot of uh, climate change pieces. Everything has that narrative in that show. It's showing beauty, but yeah, explaining and hopefully educating people on climate change. Tell us about some of the works in the show. Describe some of those works for us of yours. Well, I started with a uh, sun series where I created several pieces of different types of suns. In that show, I have Red suns, yellow suns, blue suns, black suns, and white suns. And those suns are all indicating the heat and the different types of uh, drought and different ways that the sun, even though it's beautiful, will look as days continue with climate change. So after after my sun series, I got a little more serious in going into what I call the dark side. <laughs> One of my pieces shows rotten apples in the foreground. It shows a dead orchard in the background and it shows a homemade mask on a man, like a gas mask similar to what they would have wore in World War I. And I was inspired by the mask at the World War I Museum. They were, the soldiers were making their own mask. So in my dark side future vision, in the imagination in my head, people were, are, will be making their own mask. Does it feel cathartic to do those dark side works? It does. And actually, I had to kind of quit doing the dark side 
After I did the Sun series, I was doing the Dark Side series. Uh, the next piece I did was really dark. After that, it's called Black Corn. And in the black corn, there's fire and smoke going in a very um, mixed up sky, stormy yet hot sky. And in the foreground, it's abstract, but it is a cemetery and it shows figures that are actually digging the holes and burying. And then there's uh, some rusty bob wire strung across the painting. After that painting, I really had to get out of that mood. <laughs> I had to, I had to go back to telling my story in a beautiful way. Those two paintings to me are not beautiful, but yet as the show has traveled, Black Corn has gotten a lot of attention and actually has been the one of the favorites of audiences. Hmm. You write that you take a lot of your inspiration from the prairie biome around your rural home in Plattsburgh, which is just north of Kansas City. And back in the day, that area was dominated by prairie, as was one third of Missouri before settlement. Tell us about how you employ that prairie in your art. Oh, yes. We bought our land. We bought 30 acres about 25 years ago. And before we ever built out there, the land had been used for cattle roaming on it. And I decided to take it back to the native prairie that it once was. This land is completely surrounded by farmland. So my thought was the butterflies and the bees and nature itself needed a resting place before it could go on from that area. So luckily, I am located between a nature conservatory and a conservation area, both within two miles of me, north and south. So I felt like it gave nature a place to stop and rest in between. And we took the land and planted it all in native prairie, and we have kept it up ever since. With that said, I wanted to use the prairie in my artwork. So there's several ways that I use it. One is I, I photograph it a lot, and it is a mature prairie now at this point. I also plain air paint, so I go out and I'll paint pieces of the prairie or, or landscapes of the prairie. And I also, most importantly in my work, I make paper pulp out of the fibers of the prairie and make handmade paper. And this handmade paper I use not only in my collages, but in uh, some three-dimensional pieces also. I love the story about five-year-old Laurel deciding she's going to help her mum finish some yeah. paintings. I mean, art for you goes back a long, long way. Do you, you remember that day and the horror of the aftermath? 
I remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) My mother is an artist also. She is a a well-known fiber artist in our area. But when I was a child, she was an oil painter. And she had a studio in one of the bedrooms of our old farmhouse that I grew up in. And my mom also worked when I was a child. So my thought was she worked so hard and she had this painting upstairs that she just didn't have time to finish. So my thought was <laughs> I would just finish it for her. So I I went to her studio one day while she was at work and uh, finished one of her paintings. Well, I was thrilled about it and was hoping for her to be very proud of that. But <laughs> I got the opposite response. I was never allowed in our studio again. Now, since then, I am allowed now. <laughs> but I wasn't as as a little girl. But my mom immediately took me to the Nelson Art Gallery in Kansas City and enrolled me in children's classes every Saturday morning. So I was I was very lucky to be able to attend these youth classes as as a child at the Nelson Art Gallery. I hope she told the instructor not to let you in the gallery with some paintbrushes. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> they let us have paintbrushes and and had the freedom to uh, do whatever we wanted with them. So that was my first experience of being able to have anything that wasn't a coloring book and crayons. (laughs) I'm glad that you carried on that that experience didn't just halt everything and you were terrified of art from that point forward. (laughs) Yeah, I just couldn't do that anymore. (laughs) You studied art at Missouri Western State University, but this was as an adult after you'd had children and you had a full-time job. So where where did it start? Were you a painter in the beginning and then all the other media came in afterwards? Because you really have this huge range of artistic media that you work in. Where did it start for you? Well, as an adult, after I was married, I worked at a flower shop. And it wasn't long before I actually wanted to purchase the flower shop from my my boss. I I could see all this vision of what how it would be if I had it. So I made them an offer and they took it and I was in the flower business for 20 years. And in the flower business, I became a designer and stretched my creativity in a more three-dimensional way. But I always had this desire to paint. And so I enrolled in college while I was running a business and raising my children and started going to school. And I became more serious about it after my first drawing and painting class. So yeah, I did start as painting in in college, but I was 28 years old before I returned to school. And so was it really the existence of the prairie around you that made you branch out into all of those other media? At what point did you think, ah, painting's not enough, I need to do encaustic and photography and (laughs) printmaking? Well, (laughs) while I was going to Missouri Western, I was interested 
introduced to a lot of art that I had not been introduced to. My grandfather, Smith, bought me a camera when I was five. So I had my first camera when I was very young. So I've always, always taken pictures. I've always been the, the family photographer, the, the one that kept the scrapbook. And, and, you know, I was the little child that always had a camera. So I loved taking pictures, but I really wasn't exposed again to it until I went to college. And then I was exposed to darkroom and I fell in love with black and white film in the darkroom. And I had some wonderful teachers at Missouri Western who I'll never forget the experience that I had there. And I also had never been exposed to printmaking. And uh, so not only was, was I branching out with my photography, but I was also learning printmaking. Collage was just something I always have done and didn't really know it had a name. I was always cutting things out of magazines and gluing them and making greeting cards and that was just something I've always done. I noticed looking through your website that birds feature very heavily in your work. Tell us about your relationship with birds. Why is it that they come across so much? Again, with my past, this was my mother's mother. My grandmother was very much a bird lover and she, she exposed us children to the types of birds and and how to feed them and and just the patience of watching birds i have such a love for nature and birds and butterflies and bees and and just any part of nature but i had carpal tunnel surgery a few years back and i i noticed i needed some something to be done to my hands because I couldn't hold a paintbrush for more than like 10 minutes. Mm. So after the surgery, I needed to get back into my drawing and I wasn't able to hold a pencil yet. So I stretched out big pieces of paper on the floor and used a big piece of charcoal. And I was loosely drawing birds when I had an idea to take these drawings of the birds. They were like silhouettes and cut them out of steel and weld the steel so that they hung on the wall. And after I had them cut out of steel, then I rusted them because I liked the texture and the color of the rust. And then I finished them so that they would stop rusting. And that series covered a 40-foot wall at the Albrecht Kemper Museum in 2018. Oh, my goodness. You didn't have Welder on your list of talents. <laughs> well, I, I actually am not a welder. My son is. So he worked with me on this project. 
My son is a certified welder, <laughs> and he worked with me on this project, and I've always wanted to go back to school and learn to weld, and i am still got that on my list. <laughs> I feel sure you'll do it. What is the next set of stories you want to tell about the natural world? I'm not sure. I do have some more ideas about the next nature series that I'm going to be creating, but I'm right now I'm making paper again. And uh, after I get done making the paper, then I'm sure it will come to me what to do with it. Well, you can see Laurel DeFries's body of work on her website at laurelsartstudio.com. And if you are in the Kansas City area, you can behold her work in person at the Farmhouse Restaurant in the River Market District of Kansas City through October. And Laurel, thank you so much for putting your artistic talent to the service of the natural world and for making time to chat today. Thank you so much for for allowing me to be on your show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Laurel. Bye-bye. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, musician Paige Alyssa, from Maplewood Barn director Russ Scott, and artist Laurel DeFries. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.